Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Wirth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. Hope you guys all had a wonderful week. This week, I am here with Allie Rice, who studies a variety of cetacean acoustics. How are you doing today, Allie? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Um, Tell us about yourself. Where are you from? What do you do now? And how did you get to be into the field of cetology? Yeah, so... I'm, I'm originally from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, so grew up on the water and worked on some of the whale watch boats out there, so kind of been surrounded by whales and interested in them my whole life. Um, I guess I'll kind of go through how I ended up where I am and then talk yeah. about my job a little bit. Um, so yeah, I was always interested in whales growing up, and I think like a lot of people in the field, like, was just interested in whales and kind of never grew out of that phase. (laughs) So I was particularly interested in killer whales, um, thought I wanted to be a trainer at SeaWorld for a long time and then realized captivity is horrible (laughs) and didn't want to do that. Um, And I actually discovered uh, Orca Lab's website at one point where they live stream the calls of the Northern residents as they're swimming around in the summer. And I became completely fascinated by that and the fact that killer whales have these different dialects and you can um know which pod you're hearing based on the sounds they're making um so yeah I was like a little nerd taking (laughs) notes in my own notebook (laughs) as I listened to Orca Live um and eventually I convinced my parents to take me to British Columbia so I could see killer whales in person and so we went on a whale watch and saw some of the southern residents And I remember being on that boat and seeing how many other boats were in the same area, kind of surrounding this small group of whales and just 
kind of being horrified by that, that it just felt like they were being so harassed and that that couldn't possibly be a good thing. Um, so that kind of made me wanted to do, want to study acoustics even more to do something where I didn't necessarily have to be out on the water bothering the whales, so to speak. Not that that has to be what happens when you're on the water, but <laughs> it certainly seemed to be the case with some of the whale watching. Um, so yeah, I thought acoustics would be a good way to still, still study the animals, but not maybe harm them as much. Um, and so, yeah, then I discovered uh, Scripps Institute of Oceanography, where I work now, which is part of UC San Diego. Um, and so the lab that I'm in does cetacean acoustics. So we have these recorders that we throw out in the ocean, kind of, I mean, they've been all over the world, but we have a lot uh, along the west coast of the US. And they can stay out for up to a year. And they're just recording everything that's going on in the ocean. And so we get them back after a year and put a new one out in its place. And then we can kind of go through that data and look at all the species that we're seeing. And so kind of just using that to figure out what species are we seeing, what times of the year, what areas are they in, how are they as like oceanographic conditions are changing, how does that impact where the whales are moving, um, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, that we look at in the lab and also some people doing work on fish and general soundscape stuff, but for the most part, it's uh, cetaceans. And I've kind of always been the, the baleen whale person in the lab. I started off doing blue whales and fin whales mostly, and then kind of expanded out to most baleen whale species. I've looked at their calls at some point. <laughs> uh, and then I also, since I was always interested in killer whales, I kind of worked my way into becoming the lab's killer whale person. So now whenever there's killer whale acoustic stuff to do, I'm, I'm the one that that gets, uh, that I, I'm in charge of that. So that's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so why is it important to understand cetacean acoustics? Um, I think, well, kind of, like I said, I think it's a really, a really nice way of studying these animals without having to be out on the water counting them or following them around or whatever it is. Not that, not that those studies aren't good. There's definitely, you kind of need, right. need both. Um, but I think there's a lot of information we can get just from the acoustics. So if we can do it this way where we're not really bothering the whales at all, we might as well do it that way, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a really nice tool to use. And by understanding the different calls that these animals are making, you can gain some insight into their behavior. So are the calls associated with feeding behavior? Are they associated with reproduction? And what might that mean about what these whales are doing? Um, so yeah, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of the work we do is really, once you know the calls that a species make, you can then use those calls to figure out where the animals are, are, maybe even how many animals there are. Um, so it's just kind of using, using the calls as an indicator of presence of the animals and then using that the same way you could use if you were out on a boat counting the whales you saw. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's an important thing to bring up because a lot of us that have like a scientific, you know, training, we, we know that we want to, basically be a fly on the wall and not be, you know, 
we don't want them to like kind of interpret us because that could impact their behavior and then our data is yeah you don't want to influence them in any way compromised um I mean you know yeah I I so I understand what you're saying so it's you know it's a good balance and definitely I think it can can teach us a lot too um about them so for this episode we're focusing on your most recent study um update on frequency decline in the northeast pacific blue whale um calls so give us some background on how blue whales communicate so i know lots of our listeners are familiar with the orcas who do all like the clicks and whistles how are the blue right. whales different yeah so blue whales make very different calls <laughs> um they're obviously these huge animals the biggest animals that have ever lived and so the calls they make are these really low frequency calls they're actually almost kind of at the bottom edge of human hearing range or even below it. So you kind of feel the sound more than hear it. If you're listening to it on good speakers, it's kind of like a a loud bass or something where you like feel it (laughs) in your body as opposed to actually hearing it. Um, And so the, so worldwide blue whales make all kinds of different sounds, but the ones I was focusing on for my paper that we're gonna talk about was in the Northeast Pacific specifically. (laughs) Um, And so those whales make three different calls. So they're called the A call, the B call, and the D call. Very creative names, I know. (laughs) Um, And so the A call, the A call and B call, they have different characteristics, but they're kind of produced in the same context. So the A call is a series of pulses. So it's about one pulse per second and it lasts for 20 seconds. So it's this long series of pulses. And then the B call is a tonal call. So it's more of like a moan. Um, I think it sounds like a foghorn. <laughs> um, and so the, those two calls are often produced in a repetitive series. So you'll have A, B, A, B, A, B, and that can go on for hours <laughs> sometimes. And so we consider that song, it's the blue whales song. So I think a lot of people are familiar with humpback whales are kind of the the main baleen whale people know about and have heard their song because it became became very famous. And so there's lots of of recordings of whale song and how soothing it is. And that's usually humpback whales because they have these really um, dynamic songs that are changing every year. So the blue whale song is not quite as exciting as the humpback whale song, it's just that that ABAB pattern or sometimes ABBABB or some some type of pattern like that. But it's always, if there's an A call, there's always a B call. Sometimes you do just see a bunch of B calls and there's no A calls, but it's usually that that pattern that we consider song. And so only male blue whales uh, produce those calls. Only, Only the males sing. And so because of that, we think that the these calls serve some sort of reproductive purpose. So not entirely sure exactly what that means, whether it's some sort of something they use to attract the females of, Ooh, that's, I like that song. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That seems like a good, a good mate. Or if it's a, it's some sort of communication with other males in the area. Like I'm, I'm a bigger male. This is my territory back off or Something like that. Um, so we don't totally know, but because only males are doing it, that's kind of what we see throughout the animal kingdom that it's some sort of uh, reproductive, uh, serves some sort of reproductive purpose. Um, so then the one other call that these uh, blue whales make is the decal. 
And this call is instead of a kind of long, the A and the B call are like 20 seconds long. So there's these, these long calls. The D call is a shorter, just a few seconds long um, call that goes from around 80 hertz to down to around 30 hertz. So it has this little down sweep to it. Um, and the, the A and the B call, I don't know if I mentioned, are more around 20 hertz or even a little lower than that. Uh, so D call is a little bit higher. Um, and the D call is produced by both males and females. So we think it serves some sort of social function. Again, we're not entirely sure. It seems hmm. to be kind of associated with feeding. Um, but again, whether that's a, oh, look at all this food, <laughs> come right. join me, or a, it's if it's just kind of a contact call to keep, so you know where the other whales are, uh, we still don't have, don't have all the answers on that, unfortunately, but um, definitely, definitely serves a different sort of function than the A and the B calls. And we see the, the seasonal patterns in those calls. If you look at a whole year of calling, you're going to see the the decals happen kind of in the spring and summer when the whales are feeding. And then you see this transition into the A and B calls when they start singing and doing, getting into their reproductive season. So definitely different contexts that the, those two or those call types are happening in. Okay, cool. Um, are there different populations of blue whales? Like we see with the orcas. Yes. Uh, okay. So for, yeah, I mean, orcas, we obviously know a lot more about <laughs> they're a little have been a little easier to study than blue whales which are really far offshore and you just don't don't see them quite as much um but yeah there are certainly different populations of blue whales so what we have along the west coast of the u.s is the northeast pacific population there's a central pacific population which kind of move from um like the the tropics and up to Alaska so in Alaska you'll actually have some of our northeast pacific ones and the central pacific ones both up there at the same time so the central pacific ones have a slightly different type of song that they sing it's pretty similar but um but you can see the difference in our acoustic data so you know okay this is this whale's from this population this whale's from this population um and then in uh, down off of Antarctica in the Southern Ocean. There's whales down there that make different calls. There's some in the Indian Ocean. Yeah, blue whales are all over. And so each each area is its own population and they have their own song. But the acoustics have been helpful in actually identifying some of those populations because unless you're able to do, get a bunch of samples of these whales and do genetic studies, it's hard to see. They all kind of look the same. <laughs> and so it's hard to know how, how separate all these populations are, but when you've got them producing completely different calls from each other, that's a pretty clear indicator that, okay, these are, these are some different groups of whales. For sure. That is super interesting. Um, so how do you conduct your studies? I know you talked a little bit about, you know, how you guys do it in general, but for this study, how did you guys conduct it? Yeah. So yeah, like I was saying, our lab has these recorders that we put in the ocean. And so for this study, we were using some data from off of Southern California. So kind of the, we've got the Channel Islands off of California. And so these sites are all kind of at the, around the Channel Islands are kind of the Southern, Southern portion of the Channel Islands. Mm. So, and we've been monitoring at various sites off of California since 2006, maybe even earlier than that. Um, 
but so we have these long time series of data. And so um, we took a few of those sites and wanted to look at the each year what calls were being produced and figure out a kind of average of the frequency for those calls. Um, I guess I should give a little more background about <laughs> the reason for even doing this study. Yeah, first. <laughs> um, So like you, the title of the paper was update on frequency decline in blue oil calls. And so that kind of begs the question of what, why is an update called for? What am I giving an update to? Mm -hmm. So let me give a little background on that first. So back in 2009, um, a researcher named Mark McDonald pub published a paper about how worldwide, so all these different blue oil populations around the world, the frequency of their calls was declining every year. And so, which was shocking to people at the time, it actually took them a really long time to even get that paper published because people didn't really believe it. They thought the whales aren't actually doing that. That must be some kind of artifact in the data. It's something with the recorders or the way you measured the frequency or something, but that's, that's crazy. The whales wouldn't be doing that. <laughs> um, but the whales were doing that. <laughs> and so eventually they got the paper published and then lots of other people started looking into this and confirmed that, yep, that's, that's a real thing that's happening. The frequency of these calls every single year are getting slightly lower. And so for uh, Mark McDonald had looked at all kinds of populations, but he had the longest time series uh, for the whales in the North Pacific, the Eastern North Pacific, where I ended up looking at. Um, so he had data from these calls were first recorded back in the 60s. So he was able to look at what the frequency was back then versus what it was. Uh, he went up to 2008 uh, for his paper. And you can see this very consistent decline happening every year. And so he documented that it was about 0.4 Hertz per year was how much these calls were changing. And so yeah, other people started looking at that and confirmed, yep, this is happening in all blue oil populations. It's happening at slightly different rates in all of these populations, but it's consistent across populations. And then people also realized that this is happening with fin whales. <laughs> it's also happening with bowhead whales. Um, I'm sure it's possibly happening with some other species that we just haven't examined yet. So there's kind of like more little, uh, pieces being added to the puzzle, making it even more confusing <laughs> as to what is actually going on here. For sure. Um, and then another piece that got added was the fact that while this change in frequency is happening, like each year the calls are getting lower, it also happens within a single year. So over the course of a season, the frequency of the call declines and then at the start of the next season, it's a little bit higher, but it's not quite as high as it was the previous at the start of the previous season. So you kind of have this like zigzagging pattern of within a year, the calls are getting lower and then it goes up again and then it's going down. But across years overall, we're seeing the steady decline. So that was kind of where we were 
uh, with the original paper that I wanted to give an update to because we've obviously we've still been collecting data um, at these sites. And so we thought we could try and compare to what Mark McDonald published on and show are we seeing this same study decline? Is it starting to level out? Are the calls increasing? Like where, what's happening now? Because mm -hmm. um, at a certain point you have to imagine the whales can't just keep decreasing their calls forever. <laughs> Eventually there's gotta be some physical threshold that mm -hmm. they can't actually make a call lower. So we were kind of curious if I mean, we kind of we kind of knew it was still declining, but maybe not as fast. And so that's so we wanted to actually look into it and uh, do a study on it. So that's that's uh, that was the basis for what we ended up doing. And so we just took three sites uh, off of Southern California and looked at the calls that we were seeing every year. And we just measured we're measuring the frequency of the call. And so we took for every year, um, we were looking from 2006 to 2019. So we actually had three years of overlap with the previous study, which made for a nice kind of control, mm -hmm. I guess. Right. Um, so we took 30 calls each year, kind of throughout the, during the fall, the main time when these whales are really calling pretty consistently, measured the calls for a year and averaged it so that you have one frequency for the year, basically. and then can compare that to the averages for all the other years. Right. Um, yeah, so yeah, that was pretty, I mean, fairly <laughs> fairly simple study, just wanting to compare, kind of making sure our, we were using the same methods as previously so that we could compare. Um, and yeah, that's any questions about that? No, you want me to totally, explain more? that totally makes sense. Um, so, you so then obviously you guys found that it is less now so like specifically what did you find in this study yeah so um we found that the so the calls that mark mcdonald had previously studied i guess i should mm -hmm. have mentioned this was the b calls mm -hmm. and so we wanted to look at b calls as well but we also wanted to look at a calls because we were curious if both parts of this song were declining or if it's just the B calls or what was going on there. And no one had looked at the decline in A calls before. So we decided to throw that in as well while we were, while we were doing this anyways. So we found that A calls were declining um, and that was happening at a rate of point, I think it was 0.32 Hertz mm -hmm. per year. So a little bit less than what uh, McDonald had published about B calls. And then when we looked at decline in B calls, we found that those were declining at a rate of 0.27 Hertz per year. So that's less than the 0.4 Hertz that was previously published. And so, so yeah, they are, they are still declining. That hasn't changed, but they're declining at a slower rate than they were previously. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's still happening, but not quite as quickly. And so then the question becomes, why, why, I mean, we don't even know why it's happening exactly, but why were they slowing down? Is it because some limits being reached or is something else going on there? Interesting. Yeah. Could it be like a possible population decline? Like there's just not as many whales. So yeah, so there's been, there's been tons of theories okay. <laughs> thrown out for why this is happening. Cause everyone's 
everyone's well the small community of us that study these whales yeah, for sure. are all very curious on what what is going on so one of the original theories that uh mark mcdonald and his colleagues discussed as potentially what they thought might be going on is the fact that uh blue whale populations were incredibly decimated by whaling like almost 90 percent of the blue whales were killed during whaling mm -hmm. so when we started studying these whales in the 60s that was kind of when whaling was ending and we were putting in regulations and so from that point on populations were able to start recovering but they were populations were pretty small when we were first studying them so the thought was that the reason the frequency might be declining is that earlier when the populations were smaller the whales had to call at a higher frequency in order for other whales to hear them because there weren't quite as many whales so they would have been more spread out from each other okay and so really they needed to call louder and if you're calling louder that can mean that you're calling at a higher frequency so that was kind of the thinking there and then over the years as the populations have started to increase you've got more whales for the same amount of area that the whales don't need to call quite as loud because they've got lots of people nearby <laughs> um and so so they can start calling at a lower frequency and so there's kind of a few different concepts going on there with kind of like the physical relationships between how the how sound works um but also this uh, this concept that there's always going to be this sexual selection pressure for a lower frequency sound which is kind of something we've we see in other species that females prefer like bigger males which can mean lower frequency like the low frequency call is an indication of like a big healthy male for sure um so that was kind of the idea there and so that that seemed kind of the most promising theory after uh that original paper came out and like it it seemed to make sense yeah um but then when we started learning that okay but this is also happening within a single year so right. why would that be it would mean that the population density is like consistently changing every year which isn't necessarily what we see the whales are kind of going to move where the food is um it just doesn't quite it doesn't yeah. add up it's sure. really i I mean, my, some people think that all of these different little pieces of the puzzle maybe have their own explanation. I personally think it all probably has one explanation that we just don't fully understand yet. Cause it would seem kind of crazy to me that there's like five different things going on as opposed to just one thing that can explain all of these different little uh, phenomena we're seeing. Um, and then also from what we found with this study that the frequency is still declining, but at a slower rate. Yeah, we kind of thought maybe, okay, maybe that's because populations are starting to stabilize. So the calls are also stabilizing, but it just doesn't quite, when you look at population trends for blue whales um, over the last few decades, it just doesn't quite add up. It doesn't, it's clearly not quite a perfect perfect relationship going on there between those two things. So it might have some, have be having some impact, but it doesn't seem to, it doesn't nicely explain <laughs> this frequency decline like we wish it would. For sure. Um, so do you guys have any studies planned for the future to try to further uncover this mystery? Um, 
I mean, technically not at the moment. I think it's something that we'll still kind of keep tabs on because one of the things we do with um, when we're trying to use acoustics to study blue whales, particularly for these B calls, which are these long tonal calls that are kind of always, always the same, we actually use automatic detectors that have been developed to go through and find all those calls in the data instead of me having to sit there and <laughs> identify every single call we see, which would take forever because there's millions and millions of them. <laughs> sure. Um, so yeah, so we use these detectors, but if the frequency of the call is changing, you can't necessarily use the parameters of a detector from 2006 to detect calls in 2019 because the frequency has shifted and so it's not going to be able to find the calls because it's looking at a higher frequency. So we kind of every year have to keep tabs on what's happening with these calls, which was kind of how we knew that we wanted to do this paper because we knew from doing these measurements over the years that, yeah, the calls are still declining, but it seemed like maybe not quite as much as they were previously. So it's definitely something we'll be, we'll have to keep an eye on. So if it starts to completely level out or if it starts to maybe increase again, we'll, we'll be aware of that. Yes. <laughs> and maybe it will add, add some more insight into what's going on. But yeah, at the moment, I think it would be, um, I mean, I'm not gonna be the one to do this because it's outside of my area of expertise, but I think really what we need is to better understand how blue whales and other baleen whales are actually perceiving sound because that's something we don't know we don't actually know how well they can hear right because <laughs> a lot of when we have hearing studies on cetaceans it's animals that are in captivity so you can actually measure that stuff or if they've stranded and you're able to kind of get those measurements quickly but we're never going to have a blue whale in captivity <laughs> right so that's that's not possible so we need to figure out a way to see how well they can hear because kind of one of the questions we came up with from this paper was, we don't know if they, if the blue whales themselves can even hear these changes happening every year. Like, are the, is the change in frequency big enough for them to actually perceive it? For sure. um, which seems likely, but, but we don't know. <laughs> they yeah. might not. And that, I mean, that would completely change it, change Absolutely. the theories. So for sure. Yeah, definitely more that can be done, but um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, why is it important that we have this information? I know you touched on it a little bit. Like, can this be an indicator of bigger, like, ecosystem issues? Or is this information just, like, more specific to knowing information about the species? I think in this instance, it's definitely trying to figure out something about blue whale behavior. Hmm. I think if we could crack this, it would probably tell us something about what this, this song is, what purpose it's serving for this species, um, or would tell us something about, maybe it is something about like the oceans are getting louder and so blue whales are shifting their calls or climate change is changing the water temperature, which changes the physics of how sound works and could be decreasing the calls. Like there's all kinds of theories that people have thrown out, which we don't think are the case, but maybe there's something we're missing and it would, it would change things and change how we would go about uh, trying to conserve the species since they are, blue whales are still endangered worldwide. 
Um, but yeah, I think for the most part, it's trying to, it's this little thing we don't understand why it's happening. And you just, sure. you just kind of want to know, like unlock the mystery of the blue yeah. whales and what's going on. Absolutely. Um, so you just briefly touched on noise pollution and before you had mentioned wanting to study them in this way because it has the least impact on them. Um, what do you think, like, do you think that noise pollution is having a significant impact on these animals? Um, do you think that just like in general, it depends on like the species? Um, because it seems as though noise pollution is like continuing to increase with, you know, increased shipping and recreational boaters and, you know, whale watching boats, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely having an impact. I don't know how it couldn't. <laughs> hmm. Um, I mean, I know, I think my, like my first exposure to really understanding that problem was I did a summer at Orca Lab before starting to work in the lab. And I mean, up there they have the, their hydrophones, there's speakers playing what's being recorded on their hydrophones live 24 <laughs> seven. You're just, you're constantly listening to what the whales are listening to. And the amount of cruise ships that go through there, tugboats that just their sound, it's so loud and it lasts for hours. Um, it drives you crazy. <laughs> and so here, I mean, I was just hearing it for a couple of months and the whales are hearing this constantly, which isn't to say the oceans would just be silent if we got rid of all the, all the human noise. They, it certainly wouldn't. You still have noise from other animals and from wind and waves and all this stuff. But yeah, hearing like, hearing the boat motors going by is just, it's, it's a lot. And I mean, we know from there's that, I mean, there's been plenty of studies that have tried to look into how exactly uh, cetaceans are responding to this increase in ocean noise. And so I think some of the, one of the main findings is that they usually try and call louder um, so that trying to basically trying to be heard above the noise, which is known as the Lombard effect. Um, and I believe there was a paper that looked at that for killer whales and how if in, in noisier areas that they're, they have to make their calls louder so that they can be heard. And that's certainly been seen in other species as well. Um, I know that it's been reported on for humpback whales and minke whales, um, I think also beluga whales. So I'm sure that's something that most species have to do if it's getting really noisy, they have to call louder. But what that really means is you're, even if it's not much, it means you're spending more energy. It's taking more energy for you to make the calls you need to make to communicate with your family or your mate or to find food or whatever. Um, so that that is gonna have a negative impact. Um, or if you're a dolphin and you need to echolocate and then you can't <laughs> you can't find food because of the noise or because your food has moved to a different area because they are also impacted by the noise. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you either have to, if you're dealing with all that noise, you're gonna respond to it in some way, whether it's making the calls louder, you're not gonna call at all, which means you might be missing out on foraging opportunities or finding a mate. Um, you might need to make more calls or make your calls last longer. I know that that's been seen in some species, which again, that's, that's using more energy. <laughs> um, so 
yeah, there's definitely, definitely lots of ways the, the sound can be having an impact and it's all, it's all negative. <laughs> For sure. Yes. I, yeah, it's definitely something that I think about a lot. Um, just as someone that works on a boat, the boat is noisy for me. Also as someone who has noisy neighbors, like I think about yep. constantly when my neighbors are irritating me. Um, <laughs> and you know, it, it's one of those tough things of like, you know, we, in a way we do need cargo ships, like, un, you know, those environmental changes, obviously we want to, we need systematic change, but it can't happen overnight sort of thing. So it's like, how do we make boats quieter and like safer Mm -hmm. around whales. And there's unfortunately a lot of pushback and a lot of people that are unwilling to recognize that like we do have an impact, whether or not we want to, we don't want to have an impact, which is why I think people are like, no, we don't, but we do. It's, there's like so much data that says that we do. Um, so it's like, how do we fix that? You know? Um, Yeah. And I, I think that, I mean, yeah, it's like, in an ideal world, we would stop bothering the whales and there would be no anthropogenic noise, but obviously that's, never going to happen it's not realistic so yeah it's trying to figure out ways to just make it better which means you need to figure out what these whales need what's what's the frequency range they're communicating in what's important to them are there ways we can make sure the ships aren't masking the frequency ranges that they need to use to communicate um I know one of the one of the PhD students in our lab is doing her her thesis is covering a lot of ship noise stuff and looking at um, off of Southern California, there's a big shipping lane going to like LA. Um, And there have been some programs to reduce vessel speed in certain areas of that channel and kind of like an incentivized program for some of the ships, like they'll get, get some money if they go slower um, in certain areas because they wanted to study if that was helping, which I think originally was just for a ship strike type yeah. of thing. They don't want, if the ships go slower, the whales can get out of the way and not get hit. Sure. But um, yeah, our, the student Vanessa has been looking at how that actually changes the sound of the ships and how much, uh, how much noise is reduced by the ships going slower but it's also, if a ship's going slower, it's in an area longer. So then yeah. you might be getting exposed to less noise, but you're being exposed to it for longer. So there's trade-offs there that you kind of have to figure out what, how much noise exposure can these animals handle before their behavior starts being changed? Right. And how can we, how can we make it so their behavior isn't being changed? But there's, there's a lot of factors and yeah, it's, it's challenging. Absolutely. Yeah, it is challenging. And I wonder if there's like ways that we can better insulate the boats. I know like the electric technology is still on the cusp um, of, of being there, but I, you know, it sounds like that would help too uh, with both like, you know, just our general pollution that we think about and noise pollution as well. Um, I think we can get there. And I think it's important thing to talk about too, and just like keep on people's brains, because I think a lot of people just like your average everyday person is surprised to hear that noise pollution is an issue for animals. Yeah. And I think that was part of when I first, when I went and saw the Southern residents, it was the, I was frustrated by looking at how many boats were around and how it kind of like marred this otherwise beautiful scene of seeing the whales in British Columbia. And it didn't even occur to me really until um 
I don't know, until I started working in the lab or when I went to Oracle lab and was listening to the sound all the time, it was, oh my God, like I was annoyed because I could see it, but the whales, <laughs> the whales can hear it. And that's, that's the real problem there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely. Which we just, yeah, we don't realize, we don't realize how loud it is. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, no, definitely. And it, it's, yeah, it's definitely, it's hard to talk to people about it. And there's 30, there's like 30 years worth of data because, you know, I, I did work on a whale watch boat up in the San Juan islands for a season. And that's a big reason why I, I won't work up there again is mm-hmm. like, I thought it was a little bit more responsible just because of the regulations. And like, it just doesn't, I, I can't find a way to justify watching the Southern residents from a boat. Like, you know, I, I think research is obviously different because, you know, we're, there's, there's a net benefit to that. That's like greater than, you know, showing people a whale, but like, you know, I, I work on a whale watch boat here in California, we can see a humpback whale and you could still definitely bring up Southern residents and get people to care and make people aware of those issues. But it's, it's tough. And a lot of people don't want to like, listen, and they say that it's not the problem. And it is, it's not the biggest problem, but it certainly is a problem. Um, so I yeah, totally understand definitely. your frustration there. Um, and there is like, there's literally 30 years worth of data that like says that for this population, I mean, there's safe ways to watch all whales, but especially for this population that we should just probably leave them alone, you know? Yeah. And especially when it's like, you can put in the regulations around how close the boats can get and stuff. But I mean, even when I was there, the boats were, they still play the game of, oh, the whale, the whales are heading this way we'll head them off (laughs) so that we can then shut our motor and the whales will swim right by, which like, okay, but you're still, you're still actively like pursuing them and plotting out how you can get closest to them, which is just not in the spirit of the regulations. (laughs) It's just people getting around them so they can make better business, which I get, like, I get it. They're just trying to make a living, but yeah, it's when we, live in a modern world where we can have all this amazing footage of these animals the need to go out and see them when there are so many places you could see them from shore just as well which is still really cool um the need to actually go out and see them is frustrating yeah I feel you like especially the southern residents and like you know, one of the things that I, I've kind of noticed just working in whale watching is I really think that like social media and things like that have had a significant impact on people's expectations because I remember the first time that I saw a whale, we stayed the distance from it. Um, actually the first time I saw a whale was on land and it was beluga whales in Canada and they were super far away and they were just a bunch of little white dots that I could see. And I was like, what was that? Like I asked the guy that we were with and he was like, Oh, those are beluga whales. And I was like 16 and I just started bawling. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> yep. what are these? So, you know, I don't think that you need to have a super close encounter. Like I saw them from land from so far away that I didn't even, I you couldn't tell what it was, but you could just see white dots. And that was enough to like, you know, be amazing. And I think that the average everyday passenger, if you show them a whale from like several hundred yards away I think that they're like they're going to be like oh my god this is a whale because most people don't see whales I think we're just like very lucky but you know so I I don't know I feel like the the getting too close thing I feel like we don't need to get close in order to sustain businesses and you just get friendly whales but there's a lot of like kind of pushing the line and pushing the boundaries and it's it's tough 
you know, and, and there is value in showing people an animal to get them to care. But at the same time, it's like, all right, let's not do it to the ones that are dying, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's definitely, I mean, when I used to work on the whale watch boats off of Cape Cod, going out to see the humpbacks on Stellwagen Bank, um, yeah, I was always surprised by, because obviously I was going out on these boats, so I had seen, I mean, I've seen everything <laughs> there is to see with humpbacks, I feel like. Breaching, they come up and like slap the boat, like all kinds of close encounters. And so when you've had that, then it does become a little bit, when they're super far off in the distance, it's not quite as exciting. Right. But there would, there would still be times where, yeah, we didn't have any close encounters and the whales were really far away. But yeah, if it's someone's first time seeing a whale, just like the awe that you get to experience from these people was always really, I don't know, that was my favorite. That was my favorite part of it. And that's one of the things I love about whales is just that people just get so overwhelmed seeing them and so excited about it, which is awesome. Yeah, Um, absolutely. But yeah, you don't need the you don't need the super close encounter to get that feeling, which I think, yeah, with social media and everything, people have just come to expect instead of just guaranteed sightings, which is already kind of a silly yeah. silly thing in the first place when you're dealing with wild animals. But yeah, they want a like guaranteed close encounter at this point, which that's not realistic if we're trying to help these animals. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's just like, you know, people start out with the right intentions and then just, you know, things change, you know, yep. and that's just kind of how it goes, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I do. It's something I, I talk about on this podcast quite a bit and it's just because I work in whale watching. So I see it every day. So I think it's important yeah. to bring it up because like we do as an industry have to be accountable, you know, cause it should be about the whales at the end of the day and our passengers and not about anything else. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a difficult line to walk. And I, I wonder a lot about the cargo ships and things like that too. And there's so much that we, we don't understand. And I bet you there's animals out there that we haven't studied that are not cetaceans that are also sensitive to noise. And we have no idea. Yeah. So it's yeah, I mean, fish can, fish are definitely kind of susceptible to a lot of lower frequency stuff, which yeah, like killer whales and other dolphins and stuff get a lot of attention, but yeah, there's, there's definitely impacts on other animals as well. And again, we don't, they need to be better studied. We need to understand the hearing ranges of these animals and how these sounds might be impacting them. But yeah, just because we haven't, just because we haven't studied it (laughs) certainly doesn't mean there aren't um, negative impacts being had. Absolutely. Yes. So what advice do you have for people that want to maybe like help ocean animals better um or help blue whales specifically oh gosh (laughs) um I mean I mean it's tough I think I mean I think there's the basic stuff that everyone can do of just kind of helping the environment being more conscious about all the things we can do to help the planet I think voting is a big thing like we can't it takes money to do these studies. Um, our instruments are ex- expensive. It takes time to do the analysis. Um, and depending on who's who's in office and what, what your legislators care about, we may or may not have money to even do these studies. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I guess, I don't know how much an individual can do for mm-hmm 
a blue whale, but I think choosing what what we care about and what is important and what what companies we're giving our money to and how they are treating the environment that these whales need to survive. I think that's kind of the main thing people can do. Just be conscious of what you're what you're doing and how you're voting and Absolutely. stuff like that. Yes, definitely. So a question that I ask everybody is what can we learn from the Southern residents? So what can we learn from the blue whales and all the other whales that you've studied? <laughs> what can we learn from the whales? Um, I think that, I guess the main thing I feel like I've learned and I'm still learning from the whales is that, is how interconnected everything is that I can love blue whales or I can love killer whales as, as much as I want, but that's not gonna, that's not necessarily gonna help them. I have to also understand their prey and their prey's prey and what's going on in their environment because all of those things are impacting these animals. And so like with killer whales, some of the work I've done, it all comes down to salmon <laughs> and what are, what are the salmon doing or for transients, what are their marine mammal prey doing? Um, you have to be aware of those things and, and it can, it can be tough. I mean, I'm not going to lie. If I'm, if I'm studying blue whales, I'm, I'm down to read a bunch of papers about whales, but if I then need to read a bunch of scientific research about krill, that's, <laughs> that's not as exciting to me. I, I don't enjoy reading about krill or even salmon. It's not as interesting to me as whales, but, but you have to, that's, I mean, that's part of doing this work and caring about something. You kind of have to care about everything and how it's all connected. So yeah, I think that's kind of my main, my main yeah. thing we can learn from the whales. I I completely agree with you. I think that's really important. And I think the Southern residents are a really good example of that because yeah. you know, we care about them until we're blue in the face, but it's not, you know, it's not going to make a difference until we do something about the salmon. Yep. Exactly. Awesome. Well, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Anything else you care to share? Um, I don't think so. Um, I mean, thanks for having me though. I, I appreciate this opportunity to talk about talk about what I've been doing, share some of my work. So yeah, I yeah. think it's awesome that you're kind of branching out to some other species as well. Cause other whales are cool too. <laughs> other whales are so cool. Killer whales are a little bit overrated. Like they just, everyone <laughs> loves them, but there's, there's so many cool whales out there. Um, for sure. Um, well, thank you for being here. And I think our listeners are definitely going to, you know, find this interesting. Um, but yeah, thanks for coming. Thanks for, yeah. Thanks, thanks for having me. Joining us.